After a week of disappointment, it feels like I got hit in the stomach. And a week of disruption, we bring you a big mystery, movies, and lots of high drama. From big exits to talk of new arrivals, the week's top newsmakers and moments next on Week in Review. Week in Review is made possible through the generous support of AARP Kansas City, RSM, Dave and Jamie Cummings, Bob and Marlise Gorley, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Hi everyone, I'm Nick Haynes and thank you for joining us on our weekly journey through the week's most impactful, confusing and befuddling local stories. On that journey with us this week from KCUR News, Lisa Rodriguez still tracking the Metro's top political news for Channel 9, Michael Mahoney. From the Call newspaper, Eric Wesson and from the pages of your Kansas City star, Dave Helling. I want to start with a mystery this week. I also have a question for you. What if the leaders in your city asked you to approve hundreds of millions of dollars in tax incentives to bring a new company to town, but they refuse to tell you what the name of the company is, even what kind of business they're in? They also refuse to tell you where in your city the business would be going. Would you say, let's do this, what the heck, or would you tell them to take a hike? Well, it's not just a theoretical question. While many of us have been distracted by the Chiefs in a big winter storm, Kansas Governor Laura Kelly is trying to get lawmakers to approve the largest tax incentive in state history to lure a company they refuse to name or the place where it will be located. This mega project will bring in $4 billion of new investment to our state create 4,000 permanent jobs with an average wage of $50,000. This project is so large, there is no existing 3 million square foot building in Kansas. I find it interesting that you come to us asking for over a billion dollars and you can't disclose what county, you can't disclose what company, Despite the lack of details, the Kansas Senate has already greenlighted up to $1 billion in tax incentives to the mystery company that is promising to build the largest building in Kansas in a mystery location. Now it's up to the Kansas House to weigh in. But I'm curious, if this was in Kansas City and Mayor Lucas was asking for this, Eric Wesson, what would the response be? A lot of people would call it like, who is this? Where's our taxpayer, our taxpayer money going? So a lot of people would more than likely uh, have some complaints about it. And I know the Star Editorial Board would be hot under the collar, just like you were, Dave Helling, when they were looking for a developer and giving it to Burns and McDonald originally for the new look KCI. Transparency, you were shouting out. Yes, and we've written about it, and I have written about it about a week ago, and we said that the Kansas legislature should not proceed with anything like this package until it has a firm understanding of who's involved, what the costs are, and what the benefits might be uh, pro or con uh, for this project uh, years down the line, Nick. There is no way the legislature should approve this deal until the public, I mean the public, knows more about what's going on. The only thing we know right now, Michael Mahoney, because the state has already said this, the governor's office says it's not Boeing, that's not the company, and the second state that is vying for this company is not going to be the state of Missouri. But do we have any hints whatsoever of what major company may be coming here? No, I don't think we do, but I personally don't think this is a done deal or anything close to it. So Kansas is putting together a package. I'm not sure that they've got the deal yet. Just quickly, uh, I was told by one person familiar with the discussions that the other state is Oklahoma. 
and there is great frustration among some development officials that they can't be more forthcoming here because they understand the problem, which is the public is not going to write a blank check unless it understands a little bit more about what's going on. I did notice it two years ago um, when we had the huge effort to be trying to win the headquarters, the second headquarters of Amazon, uh, Lisa. That actually was going to go to New York. They really rebuffed that, so they ended up removing themselves from that deal. And the, and the argument was that these companies, they may promise all these jobs, but they never deliver on them. Is, is that the same argument here? I think there's a legitimate concern there. When you think of the ripple effects that this brings to a city, like Amazon, for example, yes, did it create jobs in, in the city where it started, but it also saw, uh, sent you know, home values and rents skyrocketing and displaced residents. So there's all of these ripple effects to consider. One of the things that I thought about, and somebody, one of our Kansas readers uh, called me about the other day, was Cerner. And, you know, that was a big corporation. They spent all that money building that place out there for them. And then several years afterwards, they're gone. And so the, the theory is from some of our readers is that they'll give these corporations this money. They'll come in, they'll get the tips, the incentives. They'll stay a little while and then they'll go. It's not just Washington, D.C. that's filled with high-stakes political dramas as the country prepares for a brutal Supreme Court confirmation battle. Look no further than our own backyard for contentious, bitter, and polarizing confirmation hearings. Look at these scenes this week from Jefferson City. This is outside the confirmation hearing for Missouri Health Director Don Keroff. In fact, it got so ugly he has removed himself from consideration and has resigned. What's interesting here is that he was picked by Republican Governor Mike Parson. The legislature is controlled by Republicans. What did he do so terribly wrong, Lisa? This whole situation was just, I mean, it was it was wild to see play out. The objections to, to Don Karoff were that he supported or encouraged Missourians to get the vaccine. There were allegations thrown out that he was supportive of mask and vaccine mandates. Both the governor and the um, and Karoff himself denied that, um, but this really—I mean—it was an example of truly how splintered um, you know politics and state house governance has become, even among the Republican Party, with the governor issuing a vehement response, chastising um, these these lawmakers for holding up this confirmation. And these are this is infighting within the Republican Party, which was signaled has been signaled since the beginning of the session. Michael. Well, Liz is exactly right on that. You've got three branches now in the uh, state Senate of Missouri. There are the hard right Republicans. There are more conventional Republicans, which hold the uh, controlling factor in terms of, of votes right now. And then there are 10 Democrats. The uh, hard right conservatives um, basically killed Kuroff's uh, nomination with their, with their resistance. They uh, are also the folks that are pushing for a 7-1 redistricting map. They're going to be the folks that uh, uh, tried to complicate Medicaid funding last year during a special session. They're also going to probably try to challenge Medicaid expansion funding this session. If the conservative caucus was successful then in uh, ditching the Missouri health director in his confirmation hearing, Eric, what about, as Michael points out, could they be successful in uh, gerrymandering Kansas City Congressman Emanuel Cleaver's seat. Yeah, they could, but it's not likely to happen. There could be another kind of a circus down there in the legislature with that. I don't think they will. I think he's got some support on the other side of the aisle to keep his seat intact. 
but we'll wait and see. Today is one thing, tomorrow it might be. This afternoon, it might be something totally different. In Kansas, lawmakers were successful in pushing through new congressional maps that move Lawrence into the same district as Western Kansas and cuts Why Not County in half, making it tougher for Congresswoman Sharice Davids to win re-election. While much of the talk this week has been about what will Governor Laura Kelly do, will she veto it or not? Will lawmakers have the votes to override her if she does? At this point, will this ultimately, Dave Helling, now just be settled in court? Well, we'll see. I, I think everyone assumes that Governor uh, Kelly will veto this map in part because of the changes that Nick in the third district, but also putting Lawrence in the first district has just really infuriated a lot of people in Lawrence. Uh, and that is a democratic str uh, stronghold, as you know. So it's likely she'll veto it, and then we'll see if they have the votes. It does not appear now that they do, but that could change uh, for an override. If it is overridden, then yes, I do think that there will be an effort in court as there was 10 years ago when the map was drawn up, and um, we'll see how the judges rule. But, but on what grounds, though, Lisa, could that be challenged in court? We know, for instance, it, there is a requirement based on that census when you do a population changes that you can't have the same district anymore. There has to be a shift of people out of that district. There's too many people. So what's wrong with making this move? I think because it, it dilutes and it, it dissects Kansas City, Kansas, particularly where um, there is a higher concentration of minority black and Hispanic voters. And so by, dis by splitting them up into different districts, you can make the argument that you're disenfranchising those voters. Michael. There are three guidelines in redistricting. They want districts to be compact, they want them to be contiguous, and they want them to have communities of interest. And that is where I think the, the legal challenge may be about uh, communities of interest that Lawrence, Kansas has little, if anything, in common with Western Kansas, other than the fact that they're in the same state, literally, in, di in different regions. In fact, the ACLU of Kansas this past week sent a letter to the governor urging her to veto that, and I took that as a flag that, yeah, yeah, well, this may end up in court. Now, over the weekend, the first big forum was held to gauge the public's views about what they want in the next police chief in Kansas City. Remarkably, while there were about a dozen stories saying the event was happening, I couldn't find one news account about what happened. Did it actually take place? And what, if anything, did we learn, Eric? I have no idea. And, and, but, Nick, we should be clear that uh, one of the reasons it's difficult to get the public enthusiastic about this effort is because it isn't clear who's going to pick the next chief or how, what role the public will play. Uh, of course, under the law, it will be the police board who will pick the replacement for Rick Smith. And the police board can simply ignore what the public wants. They're not elected. They're appointed. Uh, so the public input is really meaningless for the board, typically, or could be. And so it's hard to get the public interested in going out on a winter's day to talk about a chief when they know they may play no role at all in picking who that next person might be. Michael. I think this uh, Urban League um, uh, public hearing uh, this, uh, this weekend is going to uh, draw some interest. I think it's also going to be paid attention to. Um, I cannot believe that the Kansas City Board of Police Commissioners would be as tone deaf as Dave fears uh, in terms of simply ignoring what the, the people of Kansas City want to see in the new police chief. If they are, then woe be unto all of us. Now, while many of us, of course, were focused on the Chiefs this week and all of the disruption that took place with the snowstorm, we had six homicides in one week. Kansas City's murder rate already tracking higher uh, than last year, Lisa. 
Is there a sense of urgency now from the Board of Police Commissioners to uh, start, um, you know, collecting resumes, getting this hiring process working? I, I have not heard, and, and to Dave's point, we have not heard a public plan for how this process will play out yet. We haven't heard a lot from current Chief Rick Smith um, in the first part of the year. I imagine he's just putting his head down, trying to stay out of the spotlight and work on on police budget issues? I think the public is so disengaged and disenfranchised with the police department. You know, like you mentioned earlier, Nick, we've had six homicides this past week. Where's the police chief? When you watch the Board of Police Commissioners meeting, it's like a love fest. I expect them to come down from the podium and start hugging each other because they're not addressing the issues that are really important. They talk about the budget, they talk about this and that, but mothers are burying their children and it, it doesn't seem like there's a sense of urgency for a plan. Well, at least we don't have as many as we had last year. You know, that's not the mindset that people want to hear. From picking a new police chief to picking a new leader to run Johnson County, Ed Eilert is calling it quits after more than 20 years leading Johnson County government. Eilert officially announced this week he will not seek re-election this year. And in keeping with his low-key style, Eilert didn't hold any grand press conferences but chose to share the news more quietly in an email to county staff. Eilert is now 82 years old. He's been in the public eye for 40 years. Remember, he was first elected mayor of Overland Park in 1981. What's his biggest accomplishment, Dave? Well, he uh, oversaw uh, impressive growth in Overland Park. I'll remember him for his kind of prickly approach to the bi-state tax. You remember when uh, Kansas Cityans and Johnson Countyans, Jackson County, decided on raising the sales tax to save Union Station. Ed Eiler was sort of outside of that, complaining about the process. He was not in favor of bi-state too, as you'll recall. And he also ran for Congress. And yet, in some ways, his own Republican Party sort of came, uh, moved to the right of where he was. I think he's been an impressive leader in Johnson County, and he'll be missed. So what happens now? Four candidates have already entered the race to succeed him. Former Kansas Insurance Commissioner Ken Selzer wants to succeed Eilert. So does Roland Park Mayor Mike Kelly and two sitting county commissioners, Charlotte O'Hara and Shirley Allenbrand. Are we about to see a major shift in the direction of Johnson County as a result of what happens this year, Michael? I think it's possible. I don't know if it's going to happen. There are four people who are already running campaigns, and some of them are uh, very conservative candidates. Some of them are not very conservative candidates. I suspect they move to the right. Some of them, though, are actually downright progressive, wouldn't you say? Uh, Dave, one of the candidates, Mike Kelly, is one of, you yeah. know, one of the biggest champions of uh, uh, climate change action in, in the entire metropolitan area, and has been one of the fastest-moving mayors in our metro about making sure we have tighter COVID restrictions, masks and so on. So when Michael says it's moving to the right, it'll be a fascinating uh, thing to watch in 2022 to see whether the more progressive northern part of the county prevails in the county election or whether the votes in Olathe and southern areas, Leewood, south of 435, uh, predominate in the county. It's a fascinating dynamic. And that vote actually taking place less than six months ago because that primary will be in the first week of August. Lots of outrage a few months ago when Kevin Strickland was released from prison after spending more than 40 years in a Missouri penitentiary for a crime he didn't commit. And adding insult to injury, he received not a dime from the state for the years he lost behind bars. Now this week, the Missouri House debating two bills to expand compensation for wrongfully incarcerated prisoners. Right now, Missouri law only allows payments to 
ex prisoners exonerated through DNA evidence. These latest measures would expand eligibility to those exonerated through other means. But would it help Strickland or would it only help future exonerees, Eric? It would probably help future exonerees. Uh, I don't think they could go back and make it retroactive for anybody. But, uh, you know, one of the things that we, we and, you know, I, I check in with Kevin frequently just to see how he's doing because it's been a big transition for him. Uh, and I think a lot of things have overwhelmed him and coming from being incarcerated back out to a free world. I saw a story on KCUR News that he he wasn't taking to freedom too well. I think I think that I think the transition has been incredibly difficult. When you when you're guilty and you're released from prison, there are all of these institutions, all of these networks to help people transition to life on the outside, and those those structures don't really exist for when you're exonerated. But simple things, as far as you know, when he when he went inside, we didn't have smartphones, and so he said he got a smartphone, and it took him a week to learn how to answer it. And, and you know, uh, he had to put a block on his phone uh, to keep people from texting him and calling him. So now with his phone, he can only make outgoing calls. But Lisa is right. When you're incarcerated, you get three pair of underwear. So when you go take a shower every day, you take your underwear to the shower with you and wash it out, socks, underwear, so forth and so on. And so he and I were joking one day when we were talking, and he, I said, so are you still taking your underwear to the shower with you? And he laughed and he said, yeah, and I walked by the washer and dryer, but I don't know how to use it. It's a huge transition. And for somebody that was locked up that long, it's a heck of a transition being out in the free world. Ever watch the pub popular Netflix series Ozark? It's supposed to be set in Missouri's Lake of the Ozark, but it's actually filmed around Atlanta. A generous tax incentive program in Georgia has made it a new hub for movie makers. Missouri doesn't offer any incentives to filmmakers. Now, lawmakers in Missouri are considering restoring those tax incentives in order to get a bigger slice of the movie action. A bill debated this week in Jefferson City would provide filmmakers a tax credit of up to 20% of the expenses associated with their project. The incentive would would also be extended to TV and streaming service producers willing to stage their episodic binge-watching series in the state. I can see why it would be attractive to set movies about Missouri in Missouri, Dave. So what's what would be the objection to this bill? Well, it would be a subsidy for an industry that uh, makes uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in most cases. Uh, and the uh, benefits to the state of Missouri would be at least... Uh, or arguably very ephemeral. I mean, yeah, it would be great to have a Kansas City skyline shot in a movie, but how much benefit that really provides to a city like Kansas City or St. Louis or the Ozarks or any other place is certainly open to debate. I should point out, by the way, that Kansas doesn't have uh, also a filmmaking tax credit program of its own. But Lisa, would another objection be that, uh, hey, these, these, are the, these filmmakers are the very people who might be doing more to sneer and mock these Republican lawmakers, and now they're asking for money from me? I, I, there, there may be an element of that. It's hard to see the direct the direct and immediate benefit. One, maybe the only exception I can think of was it was in Kansas City when when Queer Eye was here for a whole season, in which case that put Kansas City on display for an entire season on a repeated basis and really did make it look much very attractive. But I think those examples are harder to achieve. To Lisa's point, you know, Queer Eye was here for a year and Kansas City was on the map. 
Can we really say today that Kansas City is appreciably different because Queer Eye was here? That's a very different question and it is much more open. And that's why things like film uh, tax credits are always difficult to get past the bar. Last week, as we were hosting airport leaders on the program, Kansas City, Kansas was playing host to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who was vowing to make the largest investment in Kansas City since the Eisenhower administration, days after a bridge collapses in Pittsburgh, that Biden administration vowing to fix every one of America's deficient bridges. We're sending the money now, the president says. Really? At last count, more than 1,200 Kansas bridges are listed in poor condition. In Missouri, more than 2,200 bridges are classified as structurally deficient. And every one of these is going to be fixed up, Michael? Not every one of them, but a lot of them will, uh, will be. And the Parson administration has already started a state plan to address some of that stuff. You know, it was a big week for infrastructure last week, with civic leaders also releasing a new vision for downtown that includes a new home for the Royals, turning the crumbling Barney Alice Plaza parking garage into a destination green space and putting a lid over the highway that cuts in half the downtown area to make it a big interactive park. There's a lot going on here. The mayor says these are cool projects, but the big question is, how are we going to pay for them? If that's the case, when all the talk dies down, which project, Dave, has the best chance of actually happening? Well, I think Barney Alice Plaza is going to happen because I think it is crumbling and the parking garage is such an integral part of that part of the community that there will be some movement at some point. But remember, Nick, that's $100 million plus. Uh, the stadium, God knows how much that's going to cost. Covering the uh, south part of the loop would be expensive. Repurposing the north part of the loop would cost a lot of money. I wrote our editorial about this. There are some very, very smart things in this plan by the downtown council that don't cost a lot of money, including uh, improving neighborhoods, planting trees, putting up flower baskets. When you get into the big ticket items, though, the mayor is exactly right. Paying for it is the, is the real question, and it isn't clear how that's going to so happen. So when the talk is over, Lisa, what was most likely to be done, do you think? I think probably the mayor would be most excited about some of the efforts to um, increase affordable housing and and help people in the surrounding neighborhoods um, invest and buy homes and build wealth and really connect downtown, make it rather than this vertical north-south corridor to really extend it east and west and inclusive of those neighborhoods around, um, around downtown. Eric Wesson, I did see that civic leaders said, you know, this was the time to make downtown more equitable, but other than holding their press conference at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. How else was this plan equitable? See, Nick, we right here. We right here. We still can't get three blocks developed on 18th Street. And, and it's just mind-boggling. When you look at it from Purcell to Vine, from Vine to Highland, Highland to Woodland, three blocks. And we still can't get those blocks developed. And nobody mentioned anything about it. 18th and Vine, the Jazz District, which is a part of Kansas City. And it isn't as if, Nick, that downtown hasn't been uh, the beneficiary of public money. I mean, convention hotel, performing arts center, uh, Sprint, uh, the T-Mobile Center, the Power and Light District, uh, the, the new office building going up. I mean, you just, the streetcar. Yes. I mean, the amount of money that's been spent on downtown has been enormous to say, hey, we need to spend another billion or so on downtown baseball and other things is going to be a real interesting uh, discussion. But when you wrote that editorial, I, I saw all that pushback the editorial board got for writing that, saying we can do both. Oh, yeah. Yes, we can invest in downtown and we can do those other things at the same time, Dave. Well, it, money is not unlimited. And there are other parts of this community who lack resources 
Uh, our friend Eric Wesson just mentioned one, but there are places uh, farther south, farther east that still need help. And the idea of spending another billion dollars on public amenities downtown is going to be a difficult political sell. When you put a program like this together every week, you can't get to every story making the headlines. We do try. What was the big local story we missed? A painful week as Kansas City's Super Bowl journey comes to an abrupt end. I'm kind of at a loss for words. And a winter snowstorm doesn't do anything to improve the mood. It was a week that saw former Kansas Senator and presidential candidate Bob Dole finally lay to rest in a private ceremony at Arlington National Cemetery. Are we about to reopen that more than 30-year-old explosion case that killed six Kansas City firefighters? Another major retailer closes on the Country Club Plaza. Michael Kors shuts down after a decade. A vandalized historic marker that stood outside the childhood home in Georgia of baseball legend Jackie Robinson is now headed to Kansas City. The Negro Leagues Baseball Museum says the bullet-riddled sign will serve as a reminder of the racial issues that America still faces today. Guess what else is coming? Margaritaville, the new resort, will be built on the site of the former Schlitterbahn Water Park. And is SeaWorld coming to KC? The world's best-known marine life park may be the new owners of Worlds of Fun. SeaWorld making a more than $3 billion bid for Worlds of Fun parent company, Cedar Fair. Alrighty, Lisa, did you pick one of those stories or something completely different? This may be the first the first show I've ever been on where we haven't had a segment on COVID. And I think that that, that is notable. Health experts this, this week said that we may have reached and, and passed the peak of, of Omicron. That said, cases are still higher than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. It's not, they're warning people not to let your guard down yet, but we may have just a tiny, tiny bit of good news about COVID-19. Eric. I said, you know, the Chiefs losing. That was heartbreaking. My son said, take all our Chiefs stuff out and put it in a trash bag and throw it out. No, but I, I, I picked the Chiefs. Michael Mahoney. My pick is going to be the re-examination, potential re-examination of the firefighters explosion from 1988. I think uh, that case and uh, the possible uh, re-examination of uh, who did it um, might be in the near future. Dave. The uh, uh, fighting over 18th and Vine has not gone away. And in fact, the city's administration is at some odds with Melissa Robinson and Brandon Ellington on uh, development plans for that area. Uh, 18th and Vine remains an important focus uh, for the people of Kansas City. And there is still not general agreement on what can and should be done now. And on that, we will say our week has been reviewed thanks to KCUR's Lisa Rodriguez, the Coles' Eric Wesson, still keeping his toe in at Channel 9, Michael Mahoney, and from the pages of your Kansas City star, Dave Helling. And I'm Nick Haynes. From all of us here at Kansas City PBS, be well, keep calm, and carry on.